Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Marrow. Jennifer Moore is a weaver, teacher, and artist specializing in double weave. She serves on the board of Andean Textile Arts, and she lives and works in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So Jennifer Moore, welcome to the Longthread Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm enjoying seeing your home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is full of baskets and textiles, and it must just be a really wonderful place for a weaver. It is. I've been here 22 years now, and I've lived in a number of different places and a lot of wonderful places, but I've never felt so at home and so supported in my life as a weaver and an artist as I do here. And it's such a a rich environment and an inspiring environment. Now, one of the things that you are best known for is Double Weave. You've had several books, several video courses. Your website is called Double Weaver. So I'm going to ask you about something totally different. (laughs) You have spent a lot of time working with indigenous weavers in Peru. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Well, I became fascinated with Peru decades ago as I got more into my life as a weaver and particularly in double weave and started learning about the deep history of pre-Columbian weaving and double weave in particular in the Andes. And I know that sometime in the 90s, I was able to take a seminar at one of the weaving conferences by Ed Frankmont on the quipus. And that totally fascinated me that there was another form of communication, another form of non-written language that was built into textiles. And along the way, I also met Nilda Kayanyaupa and became very interested in the work that she was doing. So for people who aren't familiar with kipus, can you explain what that is? Well, a kipu is a form of record keeping that is a cord that has subsidiary cords hanging off of it. And then there are knots of different numbers of knots tied into these subsidiary cords. And then there are further subsidiary cords off of those. And there can be colors in the cords. And all of this was a form of record keeping. So we are still working on deciphering this this non-written language. So we don't entirely know what they said, but there are still hundreds or thousands of these in existence. Many of them were destroyed, but there are still hundreds of them in museums that can be seen. And there are people working on figuring out this form of language. One of the things I find really interesting about them is that the people who study them are not necessarily archaeologists or textile folks, 
Sometimes it's people who are interested in math and codes. Right, right. It is a form of code. And it's sort of, you know, textiles really, weaving is a binary code. It is sort of the original binary code. And so mathematicians tend to be drawn to weaving and vice versa. And whether or not you consider yourself a mathematician, which I certainly don't, it's all math. Everything we're doing is math, and it is a binary code. And many cultures, including the pre-Columbian Andean weavers, embedded their, their culture into their textiles. So it has been a form of nonverbal communication for, for millennia. And so what Nilda is doing, and we spoke with her in, I believe it was season two, she is preserving some of the techniques and motifs. What about her work was particularly interesting to you? Well, the fact that she is doing exactly that, she's not just preserving techniques, but she is reintroducing techniques that were lost after the Spanish conquest. And Double weave happened to be one of those, so that particularly sparked my interest. And in the mid 80s, a book came out by Adele Collender called Double Woven Treasures of Old Peru. And so that is a well worn copy of mine. And so for many years, it has been on my life list to finally get down to Peru and see the weavers down there, see the weaving down there. And in the early 2000s, the early years of, the, of this millennium, an international folk art market started up in Santa Fe. And it's an amazing experience. And pretty much from the first couple of years, I started volunteering at the folk art market every year. And through doing that, I got to meet Nilda because she started coming to the folk art market. She's actually sort of a poster child for the folk art market. And so I got to meet her and tell her about my fascination with Peru and pre-Columbian textiles. And she said, well, you have to come down here. You must come down and visit us. And I finally got that opportunity in 2010 when she organized the first of, so far, three Tinkwe conferences. And in addition to attending the conference, which was held in Urubamba, Peru, I also signed up to go on the Andean Textile Arts Tour following the conference. And we traveled around the Sacred Valley in Peru and we visited three of the 10 weaving communities of the Center for Traditional Textiles of Cusco, and also visited various pre-Columbian sites, Incan sites, and got to visit the Amano Museum in Lima, which is an amazing repository of pre-Columbian textiles. And so that really got the ball rolling for me. I started after that year specifically volunteering in Nilda's booth at the folk art market every summer. And in the summer of 2012, she stayed at my house when she came for the folk art market. And one evening, she sat me down and told me that she was starting to organize the next Tinkwe conference for November of 2013. 
And she told me that she wanted me to come and teach a workshop in Double Weave to 20 of her weavers, to the two best weavers from each of the 10 communities. And that what she wanted me to do was to make a couple dozen backstrap looms, have them all set up, ready to go in double weave, and ship them down to Peru in enough time to be there for the conference, and to teach this to these weavers. And I can hardly even express what an amazing honor this was to be asked to be the person to reintroduce this technique to these descendants of the Incan and pre-Incan weavers. But uh, also at the same time, it was kind of a terrifying prospect because I had maybe a few hours of experience weaving on a backstrap loom on looms that had been all prepared and handed to us. And so I had never made set up a backstrap loom. And I had already read the books, seen the the work that was out there in Double Weave, but I had never seen a complete backstrap loom set up for Double Weave or seen any instructions for how to actually do that. So it meant starting from ground zero and researching and figuring out how to do this, how to make these looms. And these are people who don't speak English. So I would not be able to teach them in the way that I'm used to teaching in a classroom with a whiteboard and all of this. So I spent the year listening to Spanish tapes in my car and trying to hone my Spanish skills, which are rudimentary at best. And so there were all these unknowns and everything was outside of my comfort zone. So um, it was it was quite an experience, and I have to give huge props to Laverne Waddington, who is an amazing backstrap weaver living in Bolivia. She is from Australia, but has been living in Bolivia for 25, 30 years now. And I tried for months to reach her via email and never heard back from her, so my emails were just going off into unknown cyberspace somewhere. And so a year went by, a year later, June, July of 2013, and it was the folk art market again. And I was working in Nilda's booth again. And so she said, so I'm expecting to receive all these backstrap looms from you by early October. And I just said, yes, of course, but I still had no idea how to do it. And I was getting pretty panic stricken. I, I was so afraid of falling on my face with this project that I so wanted to succeed. And I just kept thinking, if I could only reach Laverne Waddington, I know she could help me. And it was the last day of the folk art market, and I was sitting at a table in Nelda's booth and writing up sales tickets. And I looked up and Laverne Waddington was standing in front of me. And I just thought, wow, if I have any powers of manifestation, I just called them in big time. And she was on a teaching tour through the United States. And I said, oh my gosh, you're the one person in the world that I need right now. 
And how long are you here? And she had two more days in town. And I said, do you have time to come to my house and show me how to do this? And she said, sure. And so a couple of days later, she came over to my house and she sat down. And within two hours, I knew how to do it. So I just owe her a huge debt. And I knew what to do then. And then I got really busy making all these backstrap looms and double weave warps and setting them up. And it was pretty much by the skin of my teeth. But everything happened just as it was meant to. Had you known Laverne before? I had met her briefly. So I knew her briefly. But obviously, this was a whole nother level. And I just can't thank her enough. So does she do does she do double weave on backstrap loom? She does. She she does many, many different techniques on the backstrap loom. So her specialization is all the different techniques on a backstrap loom. And I had gone to her blog and looked up double weave and I found just a little bit. And she has done quite a bit more and she is doing really beautiful work in double weave pickup on the backstrap loom. But at that time, which was 2012, 2013, I only saw one little example of it on her blog. But she knew enough at that point, plenty, to know how to set it up and know how to show me how to do it. So um, because double weave, you need more pedal bars than you do for plain weave. And so much of the warp-faced weaving that is done on a backstrap loom is done in the plain weave structure. And you only need the two heddle bars, the ability to make the two sheds. But for double weave, you need four sheds. And so it's sort of like creating a little four shaft loom on the backstrap loom. And so that's what I needed to learn how to do. One of the things about backstrap weaving is that not only do you have to set up your warp, but you have to build the whole loom. Right, right. So you have to make the loom, which is essentially several sticks. And then you are a part of that loom, you are the tensioning system on that loom. And it is a significant skill set to know how to weave on these. And the weavers down there in Peru, they learn as small children, and they've been doing it their whole lives. And it's quite another thing as an adult and even as an older adult to take on these physical skills, which are significant. And so I had to make the warps, make the backstrap looms, and then get them started, get the headers headers put in and the beginning so that they could just be ready to go once I got down there to Peru. So that all came to pass in just in enough time. And then I had been working on my Spanish skills, as I said, but there's the whole weaving vocabulary, which is another thing. And so I wrote up all my double weave instructions in English, and I emailed them down to Nilda at the Center for Traditional Textiles of Cusco and asked her if she could have a bilingual speaker translate them into Spanish so that I could at least refer to those as I attempted to teach double weave in Spanish to these 20 weavers. Well, their first language is Quechua. 
It is not Spanish. And I didn't speak a word of Quechua. And so it really was not translating. I attempted to speak to them and explain what I was doing in Spanish. And I was just getting these blank deer in the headlights look back from these people. And so after a few minutes of trying to do that, I realized this is not working. And so finally, it it occurred to me that how they learn to weave is by sitting down at the knees of their mothers and grandmothers and aunts and older sisters and watching. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit down and strap on a backstrap loom and do it. And so that's what I did. And they all gathered around and watched what I was doing and looked sideways into the shed and watched my hands and what the threads were doing. And then they went and sat down and put on their looms and did it. And it was actually pretty much that simple, that all I had to do was sit down, demonstrate the process and do it. And then they knew what to do. It got a little bit more complex when it came to demonstrating the actual double weave pickup, because um, this was another thing that was different for me, is that there are a number of different techniques for setting up and doing double weave pickup. And the technique that I work in and have worked in for many years is different than the technique that was done in pre-Columbian Peru, which is essentially equivalent to fin weave which is a technique that is done in Scandinavia. And so I wanted to be as authentic as I possibly could be to teaching the way it had been done in pre-Columbian Peru. So I had to hone my skills a little bit in fin weave and set up the looms according to that system, which is different than the system that I'm used to doing. And also, I work entirely off of a graph design. And that is the only way that I know how to work is from a visual design on graph paper. But the way that they work is straight out of their heads. They have nothing written down. They have nothing in front of them. And they just learn a technique visually, a design visually. And that is how they begin to learn as children, is a basic design that they then build upon. So. I figured, well, if I draw out a design on graph paper and I teach them how to read that graph design and how to follow it, they will learn it. And then they will simply go off from that and start doing it in their own way. And that is exactly what happened. And so I wanted to create a design on graph paper that somehow related to their culture. And I wanted it to be fun for them. So I ended up drawing a design of two llamas facing each other in a symmetrical design. And they just loved it. They thought that was so much fun. And as soon as I showed them how to do it, they were off and running and wove the design of these two llamas looking at each other. So I had two days with them for just two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon to teach them these techniques. And then I had them for a third day. And for the third day, I shipped down a bunch of spools of cotton carpet warp, which is much thicker than what they're used to working in, but it enabled me to teach them and for them to learn much more quickly. So I sent a bunch of those down so that on the third day, we could wind warps and they could make their own 
backstrap looms and set them up for the double weave so that they could then go forward. And part of the goal here that Nilda had, and part of the reason that she chose the two best weavers from each community was because they would learn the quickest and then they could go back to their own communities and teach it forward to other weavers in the community. And that's exactly what happened. And I was able to go back again for the third Tinkwe conference in 2017, where they had an exhibit, actually two exhibits, two locations of the best double weave that had been done in the four years since I taught it down there. And the work had progressed just phenomenally. They had expanded to working with many colors and to creating their own designs, both using traditional motifs and images from their daily life of people and animals and buildings and so on. And one of the great experiences for me was that I went down several days early before the conference started so that I could be involved in mounting and hanging these exhibits. And so I got to see all of the textiles And one of the things that the Center for Traditional Textiles of Cusco does is every textile that is produced, every weaving that is produced, has a hang tag on it that has a picture of the weaver and shows what community they are from and what the technique is. And so I got to see every hang tag on the back of each of these double weave textiles and see who the weaver was. And I brought the list of all the weavers that had been in my workshop in 2013. Not one of these textiles was done by a weaver that I had taught, which means that these were all second generation or beyond weavers from the generation that I had taught. So that means that the project was a success. And I got to go back again in 2019 as one of the leaders on the Andean Textile Arts Tour. And there was a special event called the Encuentro that was a gathering of 300 weavers from the 10 communities. And one of the events that day was a contest of one weaver from each of the 10 communities that they had three hours to weave. They got to have a warp already set up on a backstrap loom, but nothing else prepared. And they had three hours to weave the image of a condor on this loom. And so I spent much of the day going over to the tent where they were doing this contest and watching the progress of these weavings of the condors. And it was so amazing to watch them develop these images straight out of their heads. Some of them were able to complete their image that day and some were not. But uh, it was quite remarkable to watch the variety of their interpretations of a condor and how they evolved. And I wanted to take one of these home with me. So it was a very tough choice, but I chose one of the backstrap loom and uh, their weaver. And she did not finish that day, but she went home over the next three days. And not only completed one condor, but two more. And all three were different. And I was able to buy this piece from her, and I have it now. So it's been quite an amazing evolution. And it just keeps growing and growing. And it's well enough established now that I feel 
very confident that it is part of their culture again and will continue to grow. One of the things that Nilda is trying to do with her project is to preserve the differences between the different communities so that people don't converge to what the market wants. If you taught weavers in 10 different communities, are you seeing the way that double weave is interpreted differently in each of those communities? For example, does something from Acha Alta look like Acha Alta in double weave? Well, it's a little bit different because this is such a different technique than the techniques that they've been working in for many, many years. And so it was added on to their visual vocabulary. And so what I'm seeing more is a difference in the use of color, a difference in the imagery that is being presented. And what I saw that one day at this Encuentro in 2019 was that some of the communities had become more adept at double weave than some of the others had. And there were definitely some standouts. There were maybe four or five standouts and others that were struggling with it a little bit more. So different communities have their specializations. And so some of the communities have perhaps taken a little bit more to double weave than some of the others have and developed it to a higher degree. So you were sort of reverse engineering or or going back to a pre-Columbian textile technique. Can you see a link between what we find in archaeology and what people are creating today? I think one of the exhibits at the Tinkui was actually a reproduction of archaeological pieces, but presumably that's not what people are doing all the time. Right. So one interesting thing is that the pre-Columbian double weaves were predominantly balanced weave. They were actually slightly warp-faced. There, there were slightly more warp ends per inch than weft picks, but you definitely see the plain weave structure. You definitely see the weft in addition to the warp. But the, the Andean weavers today, the Peruvian weavers today, are working in a much more warp-faced techniques. And this is because of the backstrap loom not having a reed holding the warp ends to a particular width. And so they tend to naturally draw into a more warp-faced structure. And so while I taught the double weave in a more balanced approach to align more with how it had been done in the pre-Columbian weaving, it has evolved into a very warp-faced weaving. And so you're seeing almost entirely warp and not so much the weft. And what I am seeing is less of the traditional motifs. I'm seeing a little bit of the traditional motifs, but much more an interpretation of their daily life. I'm seeing much more of the llamas. I'm seeing images of a woman sitting at a backstrap loom. I'm seeing images of a church and a row of people holding hands, for example. So it has really, I think, become much more of a personal expression than simply a reproduction of the traditional double weave. And an interesting thing is that the the community of Pitumarca is a community that has specialized in a pre-Columbian technique called scaffold weaving or discontinuous warp 
or in Quechua, the term is tikia. And the fundamental format of this is sort of a quadrant, four quadrants of different colors. And this could be done in double weave in a completely different technique, but in a visual that mirrors that four quadrant visual. And I showed this to them when I was down there teaching and particularly to the weavers from Pitumarca. And I saw these light bulbs come to life in their eyes when they saw this and they made that connection. And what I have been seeing since then is this visual of the four quadrants in four different colors, but with all this imagery overlaid on top of that. And so it's sort of like they are merging the visual of the four quadrants of the scaffold weaving with the double weave imagery that is possible. So it's been a really interesting evolution. They are really taking it and making it their own rather than simply reproducing the pre-Columbian textiles, which so it's really becoming a living evolution rather than simply a re revitalization of a technique it is going forward and i i really love what i'm seeing them doing now and it keeps growing i i'm watching what they're doing now since covid on their website and they are making pieces with images that they are putting in stuffing between the layers so it becomes a three-dimensional sort of relief form and that's not something that i showed them so that's something, it's something that can be done, but it's something that they figured out all on their own. So I think it's really, in a way, the best of both worlds in that they are revitalizing a pre-Columbian technique, but they are also making it a living technique and bringing it into their own daily lives. This is sort of a bigger scale of something that a teacher always does, I guess, which is to teach the techniques for what you do to somebody else who interprets it. Because when I look at your weaving designs, they look so distinct from everything that you're teaching. Well, yes, that's certainly true of what I'm teaching or what I did teach in Peru. But, you know, as a teacher, your hope is that you will teach the techniques and give the groundwork, give the toolbox to your students to the point that they become comfortable with it, that they understand it but that they will go forward with it. You don't want them just to do what you do, to copy what's been done before. You want them to develop their own voice. And so it's always very exciting to me when I see a student go forward and to do something different than I've ever seen before, that I know that they are really taking it and making it their own. And so it's especially exciting for me to see this happening in Peru that they are not simply reproducing history, but they are carrying it forward. It is wonderful to see that. It makes me think of some of the work that was being done by Judy Frader in India to, to teach design principles to people in communities who did traditional Indian textiles, and then also the Multicolorious Project, where traditionally Guatemalan weavers are exploring different motifs in hooked rugs, which is not at all a traditional form for them. But right. there, there's a similar expression, just in a, a different, with a different twist. Right, right. You don't want this to be um, a static 
art form that is carved in stone and never moves forward. You you want cultures to continue to grow. So they you want to preserve the techniques, you want to preserve the art forms. You don't want those to die out, but you also don't want them to be frozen in time either. You want these to be living art forms. So um, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience, both to go down there to teach this to these weavers, but also to continue to watch it evolve as time goes on. I went to Tinkui in 2017. And one of the things that was really interesting about that conference is that there were sort of these different tracks, there were different experiences, depending on, on who was going. So there were all these classes from people like you teaching the best weavers in a certain village. There were classes that were only for the indigenous weavers. And part of me thought, oh, I would like to go to that. And then I realized, first of all, I do not have the chops. And secondly, I, I want to learn from my own interest and curiosity. The people who are, who are learning in those classes are carrying forward a cultural tradition. They're also doing this for a livelihood. So a tourist is very different from that sort of level of I would say professional development might be the closest word I can think of. Absolutely. And they did have workshops down there and continue to have workshops down there in natural dyeing, in backstrap weaving, in spinning on the drop spindles and so forth that are for us, that where mm -hmm. they are teaching us their techniques. But I think it's so important that Nilda is bringing in these techniques that had been discontinued and reintroducing them. And this is really for them, for their culture. This is their heritage. And, you know, it was a little bit daunting to me as an Anglo to go down there and say, here, let me teach you this technique. And so it was so important to me to be as authentic as I could be, as I knew how to be and to respect their culture and not impose myself on it beyond teaching them the basic techniques. Part of the culture is how they learn. So I did take one of those classes while I was down there. I missed the, the weaving one, but I did take one on the bobble knitting. And the interesting part for me was that, and there was a handout, but usually there's a handout and you teach the handout and they showed it and the people teaching the class would kind of come over and help. I think that the person helping me laughed at me more than anything else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is not something that, you know, you typically get in a knitting class here. But in a way, it was an introduction to the way you learn there. Exactly. And I've had that same experience multiple times down there. And I think one thing that happens is it's very humbling to be a beginner as an adult at a new technique to you. And it gives you a lot of empathy for how new learners feel. And that is really helpful to me as a teacher to know that, oh, this is what it feels like to be a complete beginner and to feel awkward, to feel clumsy, to feel like I'm not getting this. And so I think that is one very valuable thing that comes out of that experience and I certainly have had that where I've been trying to learn how to weave one of the basic little cords that they attach to the edges of their textiles. And they have given us 
pre-set up looms with yarn that is much thicker than they work in. It's hand spun, it's hand dyed, and maybe with 17 warp ends in a basic pattern. And they show you how to do it. And I've sat down and done it for maybe half an inch and everything goes okay. And suddenly it's all askew. And one of their weavers comes over and sort of shakes her finger and goes tisk 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 and fixes it. And then I'm like, okay, I think I've got it now. And I go forward and I get it right for a minute or two. And then it goes wrong again. And I think, how is it that I can't do this right? But, you know, it's, um, it's a great learning experience and gives you a lot of empathy for being a beginner, as well as an experience into how they learn. Because we are so um, written word oriented, we're so used to seeing the handouts, we're used to seeing the board up in the front of the room, and having all the, the video, the slideshows, all these forms of technology. And they just sit down and watch and learn and do it. So it's a great experience. And it's expected that you'll do it wrong sometimes. And, you know, you can't go off in a corner and feel deeply ashamed, which is what I might do if somebody laughed at me in the middle of the class (laughs) here. But it's just that this is how you learn. You make mistakes. Somebody says, oh, you have to do better. Right. And, And you learn to laugh at and with yourself. And we all in a group learn to laugh together and to um, have that shared experience. So it's interesting. I thought we were just going to talk about traditional Andean textiles, but it turns out that there is a deep connection to double weave for you in that. Do you find that double weave is just something that you're called back to? Definitely. I learned about the existence of double weave as a beginning weaver. When I took my first weaving class, which was in college in the late 70s, we did the basic sampler where you put on a warp and you try out a number of techniques. One of them was not double weave. But as it happened, the woman who I learned from in that first class, her name was Judith Poxon Fox, and she did work in double weave among other techniques. And pretty much from the beginning, as I was learning weaving, I wanted to have more freedom of design. I didn't want to have to have the same pattern going across from selvage to selvage and the entire surface of the cloth. I wanted to be able to put color wherever I wanted it. I wanted to create my own designs. And of course, I tried tapestry, which is a technique where you have that freedom. But The other thing that I love so much in weaving is what happens when warp and weft threads cross and the optical mixtures of colors that you get. And of course, tapestry is an entirely different technique where all of the imagery and all of the color is carried in the weft. And so I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I wanted to have the freedom of design, but I also wanted to have the wonderful color mixtures that you get with the crossing of warp and weft. And I was also just intrigued by this notion of you can weave two layers of cloth on the loom at the same time, one above the other. How can that possibly happen? That that sounds like a magic trick. And so I was very intrigued with double weave. And it was several years before I had the opportunity to learn how double weave works and to actually get to do it. And when I did, I just felt like this is it. This is exactly what I've been looking for. 
And I just felt like this is the most amazing, magical thing that there is. And why isn't everybody doing this? Everybody should be doing this because it's so incredible. And there's, there are so many directions you can go with it. And so I just took off and running with Double Weave. And I have worked with many other techniques over the years, but it has been my particular niche all this time. And I don't think you can ever get to the end of it. I don't think you can ever get to the end of weaving, period. But double weave just can go in so many different directions. And I really feel that it is infinite where you can go with it. And so it has become my particular corner of the world of double weave. And I love to teach it. I love to turn weavers onto this for the first time and to see them become excited about it as well. And so, yes, it has been my specialization. I've written books on it and it's what I teach and it's what I love to see people get excited about and to go forward with it. Is this something that you mostly do on, say, an eight shaft loom or have you are you working with more complicated equipment in order to pursue your design interests? Well, double weave can be done on as few as four shafts. You need to have two for one layer and two for the other layer. And so I began working with it on four shafts and doing double weave pickup on four shafts. Then I expanded onto an eight shaft floor loom and was able to start incorporating twills and basket weave and various other structures into my work. But you begin to get shaft envy very quickly. And so I think it was right around 2000 that I acquired a 16 shaft CompuDobby loom. And so I was able to start going beyond what I was able to do on eight shafts. And I do both using other structures, more complex structures, but I also became really interested in working in blocks of double weave. And you need four shafts per block of double weave. So you quickly start to want more and more and more shafts. And so I was able to do four blocks of double weave on 16 shafts or do two or three blocks and incorporate other structures. And eventually I wanted more. And so in about 2011, I ended up moving on from my 16 shaft CompuDobby loom and getting a 32 shaft CompuDobby loom. And a little bit of a funny story that ties into the story about going to teach double weave in Peru is that I had just gotten my 32 shaft CompuDobby loom and gotten it all set up and maybe done one trial warp on it when Nilda asked me to take on this project to come teach Double Weave in Peru on backstrap looms. So I was going from the technology of a 32 shaft loom down to the basics of a backstrap loom. And so I kind of had to put aside working on my new loom and focus on the backstrap loom. And with a backstrap loom, the far end of the warp becomes attached to something rigid, like a tree or a post, and the other end, the backstrap goes around your hips, and you become part of the loom. Well, in looking around my house after I made the backstrap looms and had to 
start weaving the headers and get them started, I realized that the best thing that I had in my house to attach the backstrap looms to was my 32 shaft CompuDobby loom. So here I am <laughs> weaving on a backstrap loom attached to a 32 shaft CompuDobby loom that is operated by a computer. So I have an image of me weaving on that, which is something I always like to include in the slideshow when I'm talking about this experience, because it's sort of the two ends of technology. It's not quite a jacquard loom, but it's getting up there in the high technology. So at any rate, at this point, I am weaving on a whole gamut of looms. I'm weaving on my 32 shaft CompuDobby loom and weaving eight block double weave and weaving all the possible combinations that there are for the different layers in all of these different blocks that I have possibilities for and having to create spreadsheets to create track of what I'm doing in all these different places. And at the same time, I also love working on my H-shaft table loom because with an H-shaft table loom, with eight levers, you have the ability to make hundreds of lift combinations. And with a floor loom, you're limited to the number of treadles that you have at any one given time. So I find that I am using my HF floor loom, my HF table loom, and my 32 shaft CompuDobby loom fairly equally. And at the same time, in the last year during COVID, I bought my first Inkle loom and I'm doing Inkle weaving for the first time in my weaving life and get to be a beginner again at another technique. So I'm sort of exploring this whole gamut of possibilities, which is a fascinating experience. I actually think of myself as a rigid heddle weaver. I had a four shaft for a while and decided that the rigid heddle was really for me. One of the things that people who love the rigid heddle say is that you can do kinds of pickup on the rigid heddle loom that are difficult in a shaft loom. So in a way, the backstrap loom gives you the kind of control over each individual thread that you're getting close to with your 32 shaft CompuDobby. You just have to lift all the threads yourself. Right. And something that when I teach double weave pickup to my students here, some people love it and some people hate it. It's very time consuming and it takes a lot of patience and attention. And something that I like to tell them is that your pickup stick is a manual jacquard loom. You have control over each and every individual warp end. And on a backstrap loom, that is true as well. But it's interesting because for the most part, the weavers in Peru are picking those threads with their fingers. They're not even using a pickup stick. And they're, they're so used to doing this. Pickup is not new to them. They have been doing pickup in supplementary warp and pebble weave and other techniques for millennia. So it's not that I was teaching a new skill in the sense of doing pickup and counting warp ends. I was simply teaching another weave structure, another technique to do that in. So to them, it was no big deal at all to start doing the pickup and counting threads and keeping track of threads in their head. So um, they are very used to doing this, much more used to it than 
weavers in this country are. And the other thing about a backstrap loom is since you don't have a reed that is keeping the threads locked into a particular physical position, they are also able to move threads from one side of the warp to another. And that was something that we were doing with our narrow little bands that we were trying to learn this technique in. It was not just which thread went up and which thread went down, but moving their positions from left to right. And that is something we're not used to doing. And so I find when I go down to Peru and visit these communities and watch what they're doing, the level of inventiveness is phenomenal. I see things that I had never even imagined doing. Having warps go sideways out from the loom and then get staked to the ground and become new warps. So you end up having sort of a cross-shaped weaving and these subsidiary weavings going off perpendicularly to the original warp. Things like that. I'm just in awe of what I see them doing down there. When you were talking about double weave pickup, do you mean with a pickup stick? Yes, I do. Yes, I work with a pickup stick and I draw out my designs on graph paper and I try to work with a scale of graph paper that is an equivalent to the size of reed that I'm working in. So if I'm working in an eight dent reed with multiple threads, I will work with eight square to the inch graph paper and draw my design. And so I'm actually reading across a horizontal row of the graph paper and picking up corresponding threads from the warp on a pickup stick that is holding those threads up above the shed that I then create with my treadle and pass my shuttle through. Wow. Of course, you do that a lot with a rigid heddle loom, but the thought of doing that with a more complex loom, that, that's actually kind of exciting. Well, it's really not the loom that is doing it in this case. It's really you, the weaver, that is doing it. And so in a sense, it doesn't matter whether you're on a backstrap loom or a rigid heddle loom or a 32-shaft CompuDobby loom. That aspect, the pickup, is done by hand with a pickup stick or with your fingers. The loom isn't doing that part of it. I had an experience once when I was still working on an eight-shaft loom, and I had an exhibit of my work in California, and I was there for the opening night, and the weavers were wandering around. It was part of a conference, and somebody came up to me and said, what kind of a loom did you weave these on? It was all double-weave pickup. And I said, oh, I wove these on my eight-shaft Gilmore floor loom. And one woman said, my eight-shaft Gilmore loom doesn't do that. (laughs) It's like, no, it doesn't. You have to do it. And um, one of the textiles that I have, I wove on a draw loom at Madeline Vanderhoot's school on Whidbey Island. And it is structurally a four-shaft double weave. And it could have been woven on a four-shaft loom with a pickup stick. It could also have been woven on a 24-shaft loom as a six-block loom-controlled double weave. It happened to have been woven on a draw loom. If you saw the same textile done in those three different approaches, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. It's not the loom. It's how it is done. It reminds me of something that a spinner that I know says, 
which is that spinning is the ultimate digital technology, digital for your digits, <laughs> your fingers. And so, you know, pickup is kind of the ultimate digital technology there too. It is. And weaving is the ultimate binary code. So speaking of weaving being digital, because this is a podcast, we can't see your own work. But if people go to your website, they would be able to see some of what you're talking about and, and the ways that you embrace design. Could you give us the URL for that? Sure. It's doubleweaver.com. So double weave with an R at the end, doubleweaver.com. And I do have a gallery page, and that's one way you can see my work. I also have a calendar of events where I list all my upcoming workshops, both live ones and Zoom workshops. I will be at Convergence. I will be teaching my double rainbow workshop at Convergence. I will also be teaching a seminar on the golden proportion and Fibonacci sequence in design. Another aspect of my work is geometric design. And that's something that I teach as well. As I mentioned, I'm just beginning as of next week to get back out in the world and teach live workshops again. But I've been teaching extensively on Zoom since the beginning of 2021. And I'm teaching a lot of workshops through Lunatic Fringe Yarns. And so I'm teaching people all over the world, actually, now. And I don't see that changing. I think people are loving the Zoom format. And I also do a blog. So once or twice a month, I write about something that might be tips or tricks for weaving, or it might be just something about a trip I've gone on to study textiles, or it might be just something random about my life that I feel like talking about at a given time. But anybody is welcome to go to my website, read my blog, see my images, and maybe sign up for a workshop. And one of the fun things about doing a workshop online is that people get to visit you in your home. <laughs> That's true. They get to see one little piece of my home. And um, people are really enjoying the Zoom workshops, actually. And I'm finding that they feel much more personal than I would have guessed they would. So it's a different experience. And I'm looking forward to teaching live again. But I've also really been enjoying teaching groups of people on Zoom. Well, Jennifer Moore, thank you so much for spending time with me and telling me about your work. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. And I really appreciate you having me on your show.
Thanks to Trainway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. Thanks again.